here. I am Dana. I am the GM and host of Meddling with Monsters, which is a bi-weekly Monster of the Week podcast where we do a lot of very silly things and fight big monsters. Um, and I am here talking with someone who I have the, the pleasure of knowing for a few months now, I think kind of almost at the start of the life of each of our shows. So gosh, coming up on almost a year now, getting close, <laughs> it's kind of bonkers, right? I'm here with David, who is the GM of the fantastic Powered by the Apocalypse uh, anthology podcast. Is that what you'd call it? Yeah, I, I've sort of come to those terms because when we originally uh, put it out, like I was just like, I'm just going to use the word one shot. Everyone knows what a one shot is, right? Everybody does not know what a one shot is. Uh, <laughs> but most people can Google the word anthology if they don't already know it. Uh, so we've sort of taken to calling ourselves an anthology podcast. Yes, and the name of that anthology podcast is Trials of the Apocalypse because y'all play Powered by the Apocalypse yep. games. Um, yeah, so I we kind of talked about wanting to to chat a little bit back and forth, and I think I, I proposed the idea of each coming up with like a few questions kind of for the other, and we can use those as a, a launching point of just kind of discussing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. My, I'll go first. Um, my question was what was the main draw for you of wanting to make like a tabletop role-playing game podcast i know from your talking to you a little bit you've played role-playing games probably longer than i have for sure so what was the idea of like i want to actually start recording some of these and you know going through all the horrible labor we go through to make oh yeah them sound good well i think uh one of the things was i didn't realize what the horrible labor was going to be uh that, that always helps when you don't realize how hard something's going to be before you do yeah, it yeah yeah uh, <laughs> But so the the impetus for me was uh, in early 2020, um, I had started, and maybe it was even late 2019, I'd started listening to some actual play podcasts that are like really, really big ones, right? Like I'd started listening to The Adventure Zone. Um, I'd started listening to some of Roll 20s stuff, or, or Dimension 20 rather. Um, and I was you know, participating in this media. And on the side, I'd been running some D&D campaigns for quite a while. And we just got through one of the arcs in our in the D and D campaign I was running, where I got to the end of it, and I was just so proud of what we'd done. And then I was like, "And now it's gone." Yeah, and there's no permanence to it. Uh, and like, it'll of course live on for all of us, but like, it it came out so well, and it was so entertaining to be a part of. And I know that like the story was something that other people would probably connect with as well. And so basically, I was just like, well, other people are recording it and, and like editing and, and turning it into something that other people can enjoy. I feel like, like you know, I'm telling stories that are, are good enough that other people would also enjoy them, not just the people at the table. Um, I guess it's time to prove that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we settled on Trials of the Apocalypse uh, for what we were going to do, partly because uh, I'd been playing a lot of D&D and I was getting a little bit burned out on D&D. I uh, mm -hmm. still am, honestly. Yeah, uh, and I wanted to like expand my palette for, for games. And there were so many games that I wanted to run that I just didn't have time to or didn't have a good excuse to. Um, and most of them were powered by the Apocalypse. Most of them were in that umbrella. And so I was like, well, what if we did a show where... We tried out lots of systems, uh, which is going to give me pleasure because I want to play lots of games. Uh, and then we tell like one shots in them. That's not so hard, right? Um, 
and like we'll we'll teach people a little bit how to play the game uh, in some sort of setup, and then we'll we'll play the game, uh, and then you know it gives like sort of that. Uh, I always think about when I'm creating something like how is it beneficial to the listener or how like now it's the listener, but like another creative project is like, how is this beneficial to whoever's going to consume it? Whoever's going to see it. Mm -hmm. And like oftentimes something you can do to make something beneficial is like, make it sort of educational. Like entertainment of course is like great, but like if you can get entertainment and educational, like edumatainment, that's right. Uh, Who doesn't like that stuff? Right. So uh, we wanted a little bit of that element and, and also by doing the anthology uh, sort of approach to it, I have been able to learn a lot and change up the show a lot with each successive arc. And I feel like if we were doing a long running continuous project, I wouldn't feel that same freedom. Like I would, I would feel a much greater urge to go back and revisit old stuff and like bring it up to whatever our current style was, because I would want a more cohesive sound for a single piece. Um, and while I am working on a remaster for the Apocalypse World uh, arc, our very first arc, that's more because I was like, there are some artifacts in that audio that like yeah. I would find troublesome to listen to now, uh, now that I can hear them. Uh, so I would go back and fix those, but I'm not actually going to like do anything else because that game is what it was, right? Like it was our first, yeah. our first play, and I still yeah. think it's really fun. Oh, that's great! Um, yeah, it's, it's just like different than our current stuff, right? And that's okay. That's like the whole point of this project was to do that. So, um, I think I've sort of worked my way to an answer to that question. Basically, it was it was a lark because I thought we could, and yeah, and then we did. <laughs> No, I relate a lot to what you said there about, you know, a thing being gone because there are totally games that I've played where I'm like, oh, these are like a bunch of really cool ideas and I would totally consume these in another setting or, you know, or as a passive listener as opposed to a participant and then they're gone. I think what's extra, how to put it, um, What's extra sad and what is honest, I don't know that I've ever gotten to properly finish one of them, which has always been so sad for me because it's just, especially with campaigns, right? They last a long time and usually something happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had situations where, uh, you know, people's schedules change or players start dating and break up and that's always super (laughs) fun. Um, And it, I think another motivation for, for me for doing it, in addition to kind of what you described was like, I want to create like an external pressure to actually finish this. Yeah. Right. So that it's no longer. And I, I feel like that's made, that's elevated in a lot of ways. We talked a little bit before we started recording about how it can, you know, you can't do all the same things that you can do in a home game in an actual play because people are listening and not everything translates, especially to a broad audience. There might be a niche group of people that really want to hear like just the exact replica Mm -hmm. of what a home game is like, but I think that's a pretty small group. Um, But in in addition to kind of restricting, I think the things you can do, it also really makes everyone kind of bring just knowing that people are going to listen to it, right? Like everyone really sort of brings another level to their performance and stuff. And it's, it's made playing the game more fun just for that reason. Like oh, yeah. Everyone's really invested in telling something really good. So it comes out. Yeah. I really like how uh, people, when you're like, I'm still running, of course, like a couple of side games uh, and yeah, then I've been sure. running, running the podcast. And 
the level of energy that people bring. Um, and it's not every players. Like, we, we rotate through players. So like there are some players I feel like that don't don't quite grasp what they're doing quite as much. And there are others who like 100% get it and are like totally there for that. And uh, those ones especially, it's like the energy they bring to those games versus like normal games is just totally different. And it's really cool yeah. to see to see how that changes. That's great. I hope I was one of the ones that understood. What we oh, were no, doing. no. You, you absolutely get it, of course. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm teasing. I'm I'm slowly building uh, a roster of of players who like. So I, I mentioned earlier that um, this was a project uh, is is not a long running project because I knew that I had a lot of growth to do as an editor and uh, just like figuring out what our sound was, figuring out what our direction was with with stories and the like. What we like, what kind of stories for this medium that like I like to tell and the people around me like to tell. And that's also partly because uh, I have like a couple of great ideas for some long running games okay, just kicking yeah. around. And I I knew at the time it would just be total hubris of me to launch into one of those for like a fir- like baby's first project because I was going to get to the end of it and then I was going to be just disappointed with myself because like my my talent wouldn't have been as good as my taste. Yeah. And so uh, Trials of the Apocalypse was also an opportunity for for me to grow my talent. To match my taste, which I feel like I'm, I'm pretty much getting there at this point. Yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, I have having listened to you know, you mentioned the Apocalypse World arc all the way up to the, I guess at the time of recording this, the Brindlewood Bay mm-hmm. arc is the last thing you finished. The difference in production and everything is is big, and it's been fun to also kind of you know be a little bit of a part of that and help oh, out yeah. some of that. So it's I, I mean, really I think I've, I've made this shout out before, but I'll make it again. Uh, Dana was very helpful and very formative, and and me like actually figuring out how to do effects halfway decently. Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of developed uh, by that point the feel of how we often do music on the show. Burnwood Bay is actually a little bit of an anomaly because we also like go for like a TV sound with it a little bit. Um, like yeah. I, how I use music in that is much more like how a serialized TV show might as opposed to how we've done it for most of the games till now. Yep, that makes sense. Um, but like I was just starting to figure that out and then uh, uh, I sat down with with Dana online, and and she sort of walked me through her process for working on uh, uh, meddling with monsters. And I was like, oh wow, there's a lot that I'm not doing that I probably could and should. Uh- <laughs> yeah. You can go down that rabbit hole hard. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I think still uh, you you push to a level of polish that uh, I I stopped before. Um, you know, that might be good for your mental health, <laughs> so I don't blame you for that. No, it is, that's an interesting, you talk about pushing for a level of polish, because I'm still never completely content with how mm-hmm. everything sounds. Um, but I do think something that's been so helpful, uh, for me at least, in terms of I, I have been doing audio stuff, starting kind of with more music, but mm-hmm. audio stuff in general for over a decade now, easily. Um, and the biggest thing that I've always had trouble with, which is I think the biggest thing most creative people have trouble with, is finishing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting, I can't remember where I heard this or if I synthesized it from multiple sources, but when you only ever 
when you start things and don't finish them, what happens is this kind of tricky feedback loop where the more you do things, the more you develop the skills for them. And so you develop the skills needed to start an idea very, very well. And you do not develop the skills needed to finish them because those are not mm. the same skills. Yeah. It's not the same skill, even though it's in the same general craft. Um, but, and then, so what happens is you, you just start to do the thing you feel good at, which is starting things. And so you get better and, it, and it's, you have to finish things to build those skills. And so I mentioned earlier, you know, that knowing you have an audience, like I know I have not a particularly large at this point, but I have a group of a few hundred people, I guess, that, that are waiting on me to deliver a thing mm-hmm. to them. And I, I can't beat around the bush for an extra week every single time to do that because I just don't quite think it sounds perfect. I'm just like, this is done. It's extant. Um, you know, it's there and it's out now. And it's, you know, I, I have wanted to do some of what you're saying and revisit stuff. And I'm just, maybe eventually I'll take the time to do that, but I just be like, the next thing's going to come around. I just don't mm-hmm. have time. I just got to hit and grind and get the next thing done. I mean, I, I've been thinking about doing that remaster on Apocalypse World since we finished Ghost Lines. So it's it's been like three months. Yeah. Uh, and nothing, like, so finally, actually, uh, a, a, a friend of, uh, of my brother's uh, who has lots of experience with audio engineering? He's been like trying to drum up a little bit more work uh, for for editing and stuff. So I think uh, he, I might end up tapping him to to, to do the quality edit. Yeah. Uh, just because I, as you just said, like we're trying to put out the next thing, right? And uh, doing that on even a every other week basis for our usual hour of content is like like barely fitting in that along with my my normal work along with like you know just living a little bit <laughs> alongside as that as one shit um, yeah so like even even doing that which doesn't take as much time like i've already mostly edited that content i just need to sort of refine the sound profile and and make some fixes to some dumb mistakes i made um and even that is just like uh, just just to bridge too far and partly because there's not like the pressure of an audience like nobody's waiting for that it's just me waiting for that uh yeah and just like my my hope that like because like we do see some bounce off with people who like start the the setup episode for apocalypse world and then realize either they're not interested in what we're making or that like maybe that like the sound quality isn't up to what they'd expect and then they hop off uh Mm -hmm. and so like the the difference between that and the first episode of Apocalypse World, uh, as far as listenership, is like, I think we're like a 60-40 ratio. That's actually kind of how we are for a lot of our first stuff. So I don't know if that's super uncommon, but I still get what you're saying, yeah. right? You want that first thing to be I mean, if good. I can reduce that even by like 5% or 10%, I feel like it'll be worth it. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. I think also it's just like, it is a little bit. It is, it is a little bit ego. Like this is the first thing they hear from us, and like I want them to believe that we make something better later. But like I also want them to like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's that's very fair. So actually, coming off of that, um, I like sort of the the creativity, creative process uh, sort of theme we have going right now. Um, one of the questions I had was like. What uh, we've we've touched on this a little bit, but maybe you could expand. 
Um, what keeps you going? Like what sustains you through creative setbacks or just like life throwing curveballs? Yeah. Oh man. Um, that's an, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, I'm going to kind of answer that really broadly, um, to start. So I, uh, outside of this, we talk about outside work. I have been working on my PhD for the last four to five years now. Uh, and there's a, there's a point in your PhD called your advancement, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like a big midway point you give, like, you know, it's very, it's different depending on your school and discipline and everything, but it's kind of like the, you go from being a PhD student to a PhD candidate whatever that really means, but it sort of means <laughs> that you've crossed a certain threshold. And it's, it's, it's definitely a hard time. In some ways it's harder almost than finishing because you're, you're kind of just so in the thick of everything. In my discipline, I had to give like a talk and write like a long, very dense paper on what my work was on. I do um, spinal cord research. Uh, and this is going to tie back to tabletop art, but just don't worry. Uh, I had a moment this was back in 2019 this was before I started the show this was late 2019 where I just I was in the middle of that and I just, it just broke I just broke mm-hmm. as a person like I just shut down um it got it got really bad like I got hospitalized that's how bad it was um and it was so so stressed and so overworked and just so not only so overworked but so narrowly worked on this one thing and after I got out of that experience you know, and it took some time, a little bit of time off from work and kind of just managed to sort of get myself a little bit back in a better headspace. I just had this kind of ever since then, I have this a very acute sense of living in the present in a way that I never had before. I was very much someone who at different points either was stuck living in the past kind of in a depressive state or in the future in a very anxious state. And I never found a nice midpoint between those or, or both at the same time. Right. But never, never in the present. And it, after that experience, I think I just had this, I built it up over time, but surprisingly kind of quickly after that, I was just, I had this realization of like, I am going to be, and I tell this to a lot of like my students and stuff that I mentor, I'm going to be, have about, everything goes pretty good and I don't have any surprise problems or accidents, I'm probably going to get about seven to nine decades to exist as the person I am now on this earth. And I say that very generally because I feel like regardless of what your spiritual or religious views are, that probably applies. Mm -hmm. Um, there might be, and there might be some exceptions to that, but you know, like either I'm going to go to a different place or I'm going to come back to this place as a different person or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have, you know, seven to nine decades and I just had this thought of like, what, what do I want to do with that? And it's not do things that I don't enjoy. And I realized that being able to kind of pick and choose a little bit more discriminately is a, is a luxury. And it's one that not mm-hmm. everyone has, but I do have it. So I, I don't see the point in living like I, don't um yeah. forcing myself to be miserable um and i think you know one of the things that i had been feeling for a while is that i really i do love i think storytelling is maybe one of the most 
important developments in humanity's history. Cause I think everything, I think so much of what has caused us to develop and evolve comes back to storytelling. Cause you know, history is just trying to accurately tell the story of what's happened in the past. Science is just passing down a story of we have tried X, Y, and Z, and this is what we have discovered. And you hand it that ability to hand things down through time is so important. And I think stories are so important in their ability to provide an art, like a moral argument and a worldview and to express an idea and an emotion and a theme and everything. And I really, really want to leave behind good stories in some way, shape or form. And And so that's what really, you know, drives me when I'm pushing through stuff is it's a mix of like, I want to tell good stories. And also I just have this acute sense of, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And so I really want to like, I'm I'm not super saddened by that inevitability that I'm going to be gone at some point. I'm not super anxious by it. It's just more like, I, cool. All right. I'm going to have handful of years to do this. Let's do some good stuff with the time. Like I, it really wasn't until I got out of that situation. Uh, we've talked about this on the, we'll talk about this in the watch setup whenever it comes out, but we talked about uh, like a lot of, you know, relationship to gender and stuff. So I think the mm-hmm. first 25 years of my life or so before I transitioned, they were not universally awful by any means. There was points of happiness within that, but definitely I was not super present and I didn't feel like uh, there was a lot of moments where I would have just been happy to not exist and, and then, you know, after I transitioned, I was still kind of in a bit of an anxious phase because I was, it, was, it doesn't fix all your problems immediately. But then once I got sort of through that, I definitely, for the first time, I was like, oh, being alive is actually really fun. Huh? That's weird. Existing can actually be pretty great. Um, and so it's just like, I just really enjoy doing what I do and I want to do it really well, I guess. So that's kind of my long-winded meandering answer to that. No, I think that that's, uh, uh, it might not have been as uh, much of a sh- like totally shared experience before, but I feel like a lot of people, because of uh, the pandemic uh, and COVID and, and spending a lot more time on their own or in very small communities, um, they had opportunity as well to think about things like that. And like, are, are they happy with what they're doing? Are they they are they spending their time how they want to be? I, I, that definitely played a part in like my deciding to start up trials um, was like, I well also like in 2019, I was super depressed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was like real depressed in 2019 uh, yeah. be, because I, I was having like a really miserable time at the job that I had then. It was like way too much pressure. I was, I was working, I was doing work like two or three titles above my position. So I was Oof. being dramatically underpaid for really stressful work. Uh, and also just like there was other things that made that suck and influences from that made like family life suck a bit. And, yeah. and so like 2019 suck a sheer, hated it, wouldn't go back. Um, but like coming out of that and then like almost immediately into the pandemic, uh, where like, honestly, I was starting to feel better personally because I'd gotten out of that job and like other things in my life had changed and improved. And then just being totally isolated and like, well, now I have all this time to think about this horrible experience I went through over the last year. Um, yeah. And that like, for me, like brought into the four, like crystallized, oh, I should like, 
I should spend more time doing things like I love and 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 yeah. like doing things I'm passionate about. I think uh, for me, I don't really, I don't care as much about leaving a legacy so mm-hmm. much as I care about like really feeling positive, really feeling connected to the things that I'm doing while I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, if I if I leave a good legacy behind, like, great. Um, if I don't, mm-hmm. like, I I if I can make it to a place where I have. I think no regrets is such an ambitious goal. If I can make it to a place with very few regrets or regrets yeah. that are not, that won't keep me up at night too much. Uh, I think that's a, a good place to reach for, but no, it's interesting. Cause I was talking about this with Daisy the other day, leaving it's the idea of leaving a legacy. It's interesting. Cause some of it is, you know, kind of, I don't mind saying it's somewhat egotistical motivation, but also there's a lot of it. Of, I know how much I have benefited from having, good you know stories and art and things like that in my life from people who have come before me you know many of them who aren't still alive at the time of my consuming it and I feel like leaving it's kind of like planting a tree in a way that Mm -hmm. won't be you know um won't be grown until long after you're dead um and so that idea of like you know just sort of leaving a piece like I do love the idea of someone like even long after I'm gone like listening to the show or finding it meaningful or something. And if maybe that doesn't happen and, you know, just living in the present and enjoying it's good enough. But like I said, as someone who's benefited a lot from things people before me have left behind, it's kind of feels nice to get to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's your favorite voice that you've done on the show so far? Oh, and you can say more oh, than no. one for different reasons. It's oh, fine. no. I have to choose between my babies? I mean, you can uh, pick multiples. You can say what your favorite is. Yeah, yeah, are. yeah. Um, I'll start with, like, per arc. Um, okay. So so I love Grimm from Apocalypse World. Grimm's vo- Grimm is the, the antagonist who only yes. pops up at the very end. Yes. Uh, I, I really the, like that the voice. The sort of Bane voice like that, right? Did so I so the, the Bane voice is uh, one of the... Uh, right, one of the guards. Yeah, one, one of the acolytes of, of him. Uh, but his his voice is kind of like this. Yes, um, I do remember that was good. And he, I, really liked, I really liked coming up. Like that one, I was just driving in the car one day and I was just goofing. Uh, all by myself because I was bored, and that's how I like came to that voice. And I was like, "Oh, this is the character. This is the one." Uh, so I really like that one. Um, gosh, from Undying, I I have nine voiced characters in the the short game of Undying. It is wild. Yeah. Um. <sighs> I don't know. I really like um. Uh. Da, 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 da. What's his name? He's my director. Um. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, the vampire yeah. director guy. I don't remember yeah. his name, but I know. Oh boy, because uh, yeah, there's Giselle and there's Algernon and there's another one. Uh, I wrote that story. Yeah. You'd think I'd remember. It's um, okay. I know who you're referring to. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. It, but but uh, I liked his voice a lot. It was really fun. I mean, Algernon's is fun, but it's like just a straight up uh, ripoff of uh, Yu-Gi-Oh: The Abridged. So <laughs> it's it's just Tristan Taylor's voice. Uh, yeah, it's it's yeah, just that voice. Fair. Oh, um, but so I like that one a lot. Uh, ghost lines. I'm in the conductor. The conductor is so fun. Uh, oh yeah. And, yeah. and he's, he's just a, a blast. Uh, and yes. in Brindlewood Bay, uh, Ooh, I mean, it's Bartleby. Yeah. Bartleby yeah. was so good. Bartleby, Bartleby is just so much fun to voice. Um, and, 
it's very good droopy impersonation. Yeah, it's very droopy. Uh, it's that one. So that one exists for a fun reason. Um, there's a tabletop game um, called like board game called Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, and it's like okay. it's role play light. It's mostly like a resource uh, collecting and lying and, and like that sort of game. We definitely take it a little bit more as a role play game than it actually is. Uh, we all like invent characters that are there in this town. And uh-huh. uh, the one that I always have is a character named uh, Bartleby B. Baker, uh, who, okay. is, who is a baker. <laughs> uh, and so like I, I almost always like try to collect all the bread in that game. Um, but his, his voice is totally different. But Patrick's voice, he always does is his version of the droopy voice. And his is actually honestly better than mine. Uh, and and so when I was envisioning Bartleby, I was like, okay, he definitely has that droopy voice. So I'm going to do that. Um, and then I stole the name from my character. So that's like a little behind the scenes for how that came to be. Yeah. Um, and The Watch, this hasn't aired yet. Um, so I haven't like re- reacquainted myself with all those characters yet. Um there weren't uh, as many NPCs in the watch. No, people say uh, it was very much the four of us driving that. I do. I think, like as far as like lines and stuff, I had. I really like some of the stuff I got to say as uh, the uh, DNS, who's the the mm, uh, yes. the leader of the watch. Um, yeah, no, I, you've there's there are some fun lines that she gets. <laughs> In that same vein, I think the most proud I've been of any bit of dialogue, um, the banter that uh, Giselle has with Soren in Undying, uh, where because like she's she's his maker and they have this really contentious relationship. There are parts of that conversation that like you would have thought we scripted. Yes. Um, but but it's just the fact that Phil and I have like done stuff like this together for so long. Uh, yeah. And and then also just like these characters just really popped off the. Popped off the page, so to speak. Um, and like, I, mean, I just got to the edit for that and I was like, damn, like, are we good at this? Like, how did we, how did right? we do this? <laughs> like, oh darn, I think we might actually have some talent. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, how'd that happen? Who, who gave us that, that, right? That, yeah, how'd that get in there? Uh, how about for you? Uh, what's a favorite, Ooh, favorite character you voiced? Oh man. I mean, I have one that I think it probably is, but. Do you want to, I would actually. I mean, I think it's Jimmy Garbanzo. Ah. Uh, this is the interesting thing because something that I do, I think more of maybe than a lot of other podcasts I've heard is, and it's going to get more and more the case when we got like some of the Atlantis stuff where there's going to be more and more non-human things mm-hmm. is do a lot of post-processing on yeah. the voices. Uh, and Jimmy's, I mean, the final product for Jimmy's is certainly something I'm very proud of how that turned out. Um, Cause it is really a synthesis of, you know, cause the voice that I kind of do folks probably don't hear like, you know, uh, the unfiltered products, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of down here. just sort of like a little bit of a New Jersey sort of a thing. I often can't do like a New York cause it ends up getting very joysy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I could end up doing either to, either to Boston or sort of New Jersey. It's getting New York has always been hard for me. I don't know why. Um, but uh, he is, Jimmy, the voice is fun to do. Really, the thing for Jimmy is he's just more fun to play because yeah. it is just it is it is basically me thinking what is the most annoying thing I can do here, <laughs> and then getting to decide that I can just do it. Yeah, um, I would say in terms of voices, like, like the Jimmy voice is totally fun, but voices that I have really loved doing. Honestly, I'm gonna just probably list a handful here, but um, I am proud. Like like the first voice that I did for the show that you hear is Archibald. Yes. And I was very happy to have, that's a funny example of a voice really shaping a character. Cause mm-hmm. the original plan that I had for that character was someone who was kind of very 
sassy and a little quippy, kind of like uh, Jeffrey the butler from Fresh Prince of Bel Air, yeah, like yeah, very yeah. much like you know talking down to the people he's technically serving. And then when the the voice came out, it was right, but the way that I delivered it especially since I was a little bit nervous because it was like the first thing I did. I was like, this character is not that. So then I just kind of (laughs) made them into this very, I'm the whole idea for them, like being, you know, coded as autistic and everything like that kind of emerged from like, this is a fun thing of like, yeah, the character is a little socially awkward and and is not, and is, you know, kind of been put into this role a bit, uh, you know, because his partner who was more socially adapted is is gone now and everything like that. Um, So that was fun. And then, you know, uh, I mean, the voice that I do for Andy is is very oh, satisfying. Oh yeah, the Andy voice well. is great. Um, you know, just because it's sort of very folksy, and you know, you get up here and it's kind of it's, you talk about like a bad droopy impersonation. This is very much kind of a bad <laughs> Kermit impersonation. So that one's really satisfying. Uh, I'm trying to sort through the other ones. I guess the other voice that I, I will that does immediately jump to mind is okay. There's there's two more. There's Bitch Boy, who is also very fun to do. And that the other one that definitely comes to mind is Joe, because I'm originally from like North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, which is actually where I'm recording from right now. Uh, I, I live in California now. And so the California accent comes out in a character like M because that's closer to what my speaking voice is kind of at now. Uh, I had an interesting thing happen where when I was transitioning, I did that in California. And so when I was you know, working on my voice, the references I had around me were much more California. So that I think kind of accelerated the process of, of tweaking my accent a bit. But like, you know, getting to do a character like Joe where it's just sort of leaning back in because Appalachia has a very particular sort of thing where it's not mm-hmm. like a, it's got a twang to it. Um, yeah. Everything kind of goes it. Um, as opposed to like, you know, a Georgian accent that's a bit more like down there. Yeah, the Georgia um, accent goes down is. at the end. Yeah, like the conductor, I think yeah. like you were mentioned, that's very much that type of thing. And... So that voice is just really fun to do because it very much allowed me to just lean into, yeah, an interesting reason why that voice is so fun and why a lot of doing some of the voices in that arc was fun was I, being in academia, like there is a lot of discrimination based on if you, if you sound Southern, people think you're stupid. Mm. And I've definitely had like a lot of subtle but definite little pokes at like, you know, if I say y'all or if I have a draw to it, people point out. And I, I, I don't even know that people always mean it in a particularly mean way, but there's definitely like, there's an association of the South with stupidity and ignorance and bigotry and a lot of that stuff, which I, I really bristle against because part of me is also like, you know, I've gone to you know, the West coast and a lot of these, these academic areas where everyone's super educated and play them are just as bigoted. They're just yeah. smarter and subtler about how they do it. And they don't even have the excuse of like lack of education or resources. So I do really, it, that was actually a big reason why a lot of the settings we have are, are kind of more blue collar areas because I've kind of very tired with the sort of snobby liberal scorn at a lot of that, that I've seen in, in my career in academia. And so I kind of want to push against that. Um, so getting to do voices like that was really fun. I guess the last voice that I really love is is O'Connell's because um, it's sort of like very down there and I get to basically sort of do like a slightly subtler version of a pirate. Boy, I want to know where, where O'Connell's story goes in this story, but that's a, that's yeah. a talk for another day. Well, and that's, you know, this is the funny thing about that character and how the voice influenced that is I've heard from more than one person 
of like finding him attractive. And I was like, I sort of succeeded because my goal with that character was like, I want to make a character who is kind of obviously bad, but is very charming yeah, yeah, and yeah. very charismatic. And so to see people like, despite the fact that he literally kills an innocent kid, the second time you see him, <laughs> <laughs> that people still kind of find him attractive. I was like, I succeeded. I don't know at what cost yet, yeah. but I did succeed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, I know that's, that's a lot of different voices, but I, I think I've talked about this before. Some other folks, but having to, you know, transition um, and, Changing your voice doesn't, whether it's, you know, through like say testosterone treatment, if you're going one way or a voice practice, the other is not by any means a necessity or mm-hmm. a requirement, but it's something that was important to me. Kind of getting that level of control was, was really helpful. Um, and even before then, like I used to work a job at a, at a Chick-fil-A and it, it, it was fine, but it was, it's a, retail fast food job and those just kind of inherently suck most of the time yeah yeah right (laughs) and i to just make the time go by a bit faster i would just pretend to be british the whole time i was there and i put on an accent and see how many customers and new employees i could trick for a while and so i would just stay and i just got good at just staying in that voice for hours in a day and so it really helped when it comes times to do voices. Um, it's funny. You mentioned earlier, like practicing the car. I do that, but there are times I'll be practicing while I'm walking around and I'll realize someone's been behind me for a bit. I'm like, oh, I look crazy. <laughs> there's no, there's no explaining uh, this. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to keep walking and hopefully I, never see this person again. My, my other top freestyle zone is the shower. I'll, I'll just like, I'll just riff. Actually, talking about like having a voice that I've done so much that like it's super easy to slip into. Uh, the voice that I used for Granger in the Ghost Lines arc, uh, he's got like sort of a pan Slavic accent. Yes, um, I I made a deliberate attempt with his voice to not. So, <clears throat> I like growing up, uh, uh, like my brothers and I, like we would do like little, uh, like whose line is it anyway type skits and like uh, other stuff like that. And yeah. so, like, there, there are some voices that, like, I've had for a really long time in my, my repertoire. And one of those is, like, oh, like, oh, my, my would-be Russian accent, you know, it's very, yes. very, very Slavic, very, it's got that slow pacing to it. Um, and so, like, that's, like, been part of my kit for a while. And when I brought that to Granger's character, um, like, Duskfall uh, and, like, just the broader Shattered Isles, like, is is ha- has none of those cultural ties that, like, we have here like there's there's no russia there uh and so like with that voice even though i was doing something that like i more like have have a habit of adding in little little uh, verbal ticks that are more understood to be part of a specifically russian accent uh speaking english um like i tried to do my best to strip all that out and just sort of keep like the cadence and the timber and like Mm. make it evocative of that without like tying it directly to that yeah Um, that's interesting and so like that one was like a sort of a challenge as well when I was doing it to do it a little bit differently than I've historically done it. Um, but it's one that like I can just do for hours because like I used to do it for hours for no reason. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, an, it's an easy one to slip back into. I'll pivot us just a little bit uh, to rather than the projects themselves uh, to some of the stuff behind them. I have a question on here. Like what are three, and it doesn't have to be three, but you know, who knows? Uh, what are three like books, shows, movies, or or even podcasts uh, that have been like directly inspirational to either your creative projects or your creative process? Yeah. Um, so I'll share a few different 
think one, I would say to the creative process, there's a book called the anatomy of story by John Truby and mm. a lot of, for a bit there, I think for 2019 and 2020 and then still now, um, I watch a lot of video essays on screenwriting and storytelling and things like that. Um, and one of the channels I really loved really cited uh, the anatomy. I think it's the the channel is lessons from the screenplay, and he cites in his uh, videos the book The Anatomy of Story a lot. And it's a pretty, it's a relatively short book, and you can kind of you know skim through it and revisit areas. It's kind of a primer on how to tell a story. And there's a concept in that story. He's got like a handful of different components to making a good character, and this, the his approach to storytelling is very character driven and he's got this kind of idea in it that stories are primarily about change. They're about people's ability to change themselves and the world around them or the tragedy of their inability to do so in some cases. Um, and a good character has, I think central to a lot of good, good character design is giving a character a want and a need. And so the want is the thing that the character is chasing at the start. And the need is the thing that they actually need to like be complete. And the want and the need mm -hmm. don't have to be diametrically opposed, but usually the character is pursuing the want while either at the expense of, or at least ignoring their need. And, you know, there's, there's other elements like you, you know, you give a character, what is it, the tribute calls, like the lie the character believes, like the fundamental thing they think about the world and or themselves. Um, and something in particular that's been really influential in that um, book is the idea of a psychological versus a moral weakness. So a psychological weakness is a weakness a character has that's hurting themselves and holding them back. And a moral weakness is something that's causing them to hurt others and they can absolutely be extended like the moral weakness can be an extension of the psychological one but um and so it's something we've kind of i've when i you know sat down to make this story i um sat down with all of my players and their character ideas and said okay in addition to you know outlining some of the concepts and you know mechanical stuff like i want you to think about with me like what are these aspects of your character like what are their you know what is it that they're pursuing? What is it that we think they actually might need? And, and that makes it so much easier to improvise because I think a oh, yeah. lot of, well, a lot of people, when they try to tell a story through actual play, I've seen a lot of even successful big name podcasters say things to the effect of like, you know, not wanting dice to get in the way of storytelling and things like that. And I, I think that that comes from a place of very plot, driven approach where it is like, how do I make this thing? This thing needs to happen for the story to move forward. And if the dice don't facilitate that now, what? Um, Cause then you're left in this awkward place of having to ignore the dice roll or kind of really circumvent it or have things go off the rails in a way where you, you don't have any clue where you're going now and you don't have a compass pointing you. But if you keep things focused on character, then anything can happen. All you have to do is find a way to redirect it and point it. Mm -hmm. to the character right so yeah. like in the last arc we had um with with dane i didn't plan for dane to spend that entire arc stuck inside the mountain away from everyone else and in some sense there there's an argument to make that it really could have made things very difficult plot wise because he's not there to interact with the other characters or not and so it, 
But if you stay focused on, okay, like what is Dane's arc? He wants to just smash things and destroy things and doesn't want to have to think about like why he's doing that or what the greater purpose is. And is just a prideful, arrogant person. Then you can kind of keep that grounded. And now you can still tell a story about that. But the, even if the plot is a little different, the, the themes are the same. And so it stays consistent. And another part of that whole like moral weakness versus psychological weaknesses, moral weaknesses are almost always more compelling because mm-hmm. they're about people hurting other people. Right. It's no longer yeah. just a self-contained thing. And so yeah, it's been fun to use the mechanics of both the fantasy setting and the RPG and everything to, to do that. Like with Cassandra, her whole thing is isolating herself more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's obviously done a lot of damage to her, but to make it kind of like a moral weakness, like it's fun. You can literally make that text to where she is literally physically driving other people away and causing, you know, danger and harm to them because she doesn't know anything other than just isolating themselves. Um, so that, that book has been really useful in, in guiding that. Um, three, uh, I mean, I could list a lot. Um, there's one that I'm going to say at the end. I'm trying to think of a good middle one. Um, I think uh, I, I've played a lot of different video games. Um, and I guess this is kind of a weird pull, but it's just what's on my mind right now. Um, I, I played Myst when I was a kid. I don't think I ever beat it. As a, as a kid, but um, I think the worlds in that place feeling as realized as they do. And, you know, you're always in mist, you're visiting them as, as someone who's kind of almost like an archeologist coming back after they've been abandoned. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting um, principle in a lot of them of like, I, I really love worlds that are very materialist in the sense that they don't, they kind of start from a few basic principles and then see how those principles affect the development of a world. And so we've really tried to do that with meddling of like, okay, you know, magic does exist, but that doesn't erase all the other things. So what is it we joke about how there's the idea of magical realism. We just do magical capitalism (laughs) (laughs) in the sense that like, like when we get into Atlantis, I think it'll be more concrete and fun, but the idea of really um, not ignoring the actual like pressures of, of being a material being with material needs and that those still manifest and that, throwing other things on top of them like magic and stuff changes a little bit of how they manifest, but it doesn't erase those fundamental laws unless, unless there's a really good reason it would, it it doesn't, you know, you you have to shape the society around that. There was an interesting video essay I watched on, um, I forget. It was, it was, um, it was about some of like the technological development stuff in the world of game of Thrones and there was an interesting kind of breakdown of why certain technologies haven't developed. It's because you have dragons and dragons completely change the game on how you fight warfare and develop your society and stuff. And it's, it's a neat way to base that. And then the last one I'll say, since you asked me for three, um, and honestly, I think in a lot of ways, the biggest influence on the shows, I guess, morality um, is the anime full metal alchemist. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
teacup. Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood specifically. Are you clapping in the background? <laughs> I'm, sna- I'm giving it snaps. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I recently watched that, I think, either for the second or third time mm-hmm. and with a partner. And it was really fun revisiting it, especially with some of like learning more about storytelling and stuff now and, and kind of picking apart why it works. And the show just does such a great job despite kind of the size that it spans and the number of characters it works in, it just constantly hammers home this singular theme of human life is valuable in whatever form it comes in. Um, and without spoiling, like I'm going to spoil chunks of the series. So just, you know, <laughs> sorry, I'll skip ahead a little bit or something. Um, but the main characters of, of Ed and Al, you know, with like, Ed missing a couple of his limbs and Al missing his entire body. And, you know, the show's arc is a lot about them trying to get their buddies back, but it doesn't, um, the show never, it certainly has the characters question this, but the show never fundamentally questions if they're still human, whether or not they get their bodies back. And there's like another scene where um, the Ed, I think is fighting these two brothers who are, you know, these, these essentially prisoners that are bonded to a suit of armor sort of in exchange for not being given a death sentence. And they're sort of forced to serve as um, almost guards for this facility or whatever. And as he's fighting them, he has a moment where he sort of refuses, either refuses to kill them or refuses to not see them as human in some way, shape or form. And one of the brothers laughs to the other and is like, you know, despite not having our bodies anymore, this is the first time we've been treated like people. And it's, and it, it, you know, they're criminals. They're not necessarily good people, but they're still shown as, as human. And I think the moment at the end that's so powerful is the main villain of the story, the, the homunculus, like he just does like, he's so perfectly the antithesis of that. Cause he mm-hmm. fundamentally just doesn't respect human life at all. And just sees them as, you know, uh, another material and his, his process, um, and he cares only about knowledge and his whole goal is to kind of like ascend to, to godhood. And the, the God in this story is, is literally a being that's called truth. And when he finally confronts, he, he dies and he finally confronts truth and he just expresses like how unfair it is. Like all he wanted to do was understand more and like what's wrong with that. And truth just says nothing to him. He gets no information he gets no response and then when ed comes along and is trying to save his brother um he ultimately gives up his ability to do alchemy he gives up a part of like his knowledge and it's so like truth at the end just smiles and is like congrats you figured it out because he figured out that knowledge is only important in as much as it helps preserve and care for human life and as a scientist i find that super meaningful and it's something i've really tried to work into the show of particularly with human life being as important as is that I mentioned this earlier, but really wanting to focus on groups, you know, that ever don't get much representation or get looked down on. Cause, and I think the horror genre is a good place to do that. Cause so much of horror just fundamentally depends on kind of two things that either mental illness or disfigurement are scary. And those people are bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate that. I can't begin to like say how much I hate that. Um, and so it's something that I've always been trying, I'm sure never perfectly, but been always been trying to push against is so, like, there's a reason why like O'Connell, who is 
it, probably one of the more terrifying and, and evil figures we've encountered is, is attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he's an attractive person. And, and when, even when like, I want to do things that I think are kind of more viscerally horrifying, like that wall of mouths that Ashton fights in that flashback. Like I really tried to go out of my way to say like the terrifying thing here is that they're too perfect. Yeah. All the teeth are too white. They're too straight. The laughs are too like refined and there's no imperfections. And to really lean into the like pretty people that are too pretty. I don't think I trust them inherently. Not always, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. like without prejudice about advice, but I think this is a very hard world to live in. And the only way that you get through it without having some sort of mental or physical scar is often by passing that on to someone else. And so I don't trust people that are too perfect because <laughs> I just think there's something going. Like I just, I just, it just alarm bells go off. Uh, one thing I wanted to to pick up on was you talked about like uh, disfigurement also often being like either disfigurement or or mental illness often being coded as as evil. Um, and that's actually something that I didn't think of as much at the time. And like looking back, I'm like, oh, now I feel really bad about that. Uh, in Apocalypse World, uh, our Gr- Grim like yeah. is is blinded, uh, yeah. and and that's the whole thing. But like, what's really frustrating me about that is like I didn't choose that at the time because of like some implicit bias around that. Mm-hmm. I chose that at the time because there was a character I really enjoyed from Demon Slayer, which is an anime, who's a really yeah. who, who's like a very significant important leader who's a good person, very very good person, uh who like has pr- pretty much verbatim how I described Grim, has that exact like there's like scarring over their eyes and they cannot see and like that's their yeah. whole thing. Uh and like they're a really good person, but like the sort of like mental skills and stuff they had, I wanted to be like a darker reflection in Grimm as a character. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I did that. And then later I was like, oh, but that means I leaned into the stereotype and they didn't. Ah! You know, it's uh, just briefly something I, I would want to say to that is I think that it's not, I don't think you can never do that because I think that there are people who are disfigured or mentally who are bad people. Yeah. No, yeah. no group is a monolith. There's a mix. There's a mix. Yeah. And I think the reason I have just, uh, it's funny because I appreciate that you mentioned, because I did actually think of that when I was listening to that first arc. It's like, it's, it is, it is definitely a stereotype, but also like, you know, a handful of things. One is like, you, I, you're going to mess things. Oh yeah. Up. Oh Yeah. Like when I was making the character of M, who I have described as as black, like I mentioned, they don't have a great relationship with their family for being homophobic. And I was like, oh, I have kind of, that is a bit of a stereotype there. And I've, I've thought of some ways that haven't come up in the story that kind of turned that around a little bit. But um, it is it is just a state. And it's another thing, especially in an improvised medium where it is so week to week often, mm-hmm. you don't have always have as much of the benefit of being able to like write a whole thing out and then go back, read it, have someone else read it and that sort of thing. I mean, there certainly are ways you can have people check your work and we've been trying to look into some of those for some things you want to do, but it is still, you know, you kind of always have to build on what you have for the most part. At the end of the day, you know, being kind comes before plot consistency, but there is that element of like, you know, how am I going to continually refine and build off of this thing? I guess, you know, the other thing is for me, I always get sad telling this part, but there's uh, this video I watched, something that really has motivated me. It's a video I watched and it was, um, it is this project um, 
where this guy just goes around and and talks to children who have mental or physical disabilities or deformities or things like that or, or, or whatever, and just sort of talks to them like kids and lets them talk about stuff. And they had this one kid who um, had been in an accident as, as like a very young child in his crib where his like blanket had caught on fire. And so it was just, his, his whole face was just burned and like yeah. burned beyond like, you know, his mouth was crooked and he, didn't have clear eyes. And I, I'm not saying this to be like gratuitous. I'm just, this is just what the child looked like. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's the reality of it. And they interviewed him. I was, I was, I was quite telling this part. I'll try not to end this time, but um, they interviewed him and they said, you know, what is something, you know, when someone sees you that you would want, that you want them to know. And he just said, you know, I just want them to not think I'm a monster and that I'm going to hurt them. And like, that's like a 10 year old kid. Yeah, and, I, and I'm just like when I, when I saw that, I I was just like, you know, this isn't okay. Like, we don't get to have these tropes if ten year old kids think that they're monsters. It's just yeah. not. Doesn't matter. Yep. Doesn't matter what you want to defend or say. It's just not okay. I'm yep. sorry, it's not. And you know, it's. I think that's why I've pushed as hard as I have against it. I, I don't want to push to the point of saying things like, you know there are like turning people into a monolith. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like even if I never ever have a bad person, one of my bad characters be, you know, someone like that or someone who is disfigured or mentally ill, it'll be a drop in the bucket compared. So I don't really feel too bad about (laughs) like, yeah, I do want some degree of internal consistency, but like, it's also even been important for me. Like, I think something a lot of, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. I think like a lot of people struggle to think of what evil looks like outside of the context of mentally Ill- illness, mm. because we, we think that evil has to come in the form of something that is deviant from the natural human condition, because we're so terrified to think that we ourselves could be bad. Oh, so I, I, so this is like central to my, my pedagogy, I guess, for for how I, I do storytelling, especially with villains. Um, so well, one of the things that I think is vitally important, or at least it is to me and how I tell stories, there, there's value in stories where characters are flat. I will say that. Yes. Um, like there is value in those stories. There are lots of stories that are that way that are valuable because of the themes they express and other other like sort of almost didactic morals they can tell. Um, that's not the kind of stories that I, I generally like to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, every, every character is a, is a human being who has followed some path to get to where they are. Um, there is, uh, so, something that I think about a lot, um, more often than I probably should, uh, is that, so like we, we love to like point at like Nazis, like Nazis are bad, uh, like huge moral evil, right? Like Nazis are bad. Obviously, like the fascism behind Nazism is bad. Obviously, right? Like these are these are easy answers for most people who think about them sensibly. Um, but the people who lived in Nazi Germany, who were just like normal people, who were part of like they were still a cog in this grand machine, this this huge apparatus. They were just as human as you are. And even even those who were part like participants in in some pretty awful things, um, or even indirectly participated, who, who or even who just held views that were 
really, really negative, really gross views because that's like what the propaganda of the time was like that, that could be you like, like distancing ourselves from them as like, that is some kind of evil. Like they're just evil people. Nope. They are you, they are, they are just more of you and they are you under different circumstances. And it, you, you have to accept that about the human condition is that yeah. we, we not only can be bad, like we are as, as bad as we are good. Like we, we are just as capable of, of pulling in and internalizing things that are really negative to ourselves and to others as we are positives. And yeah. people who have internalized that, al- although like, you know, we should hold people accountable for their actions. And like, there Absolutely. is, there is certainly like a limit you put on this. Um, they're, even people who've done the worst things are still just as human as you. They are not monsters. None of them are monsters. They're humans. And that I think is so important to telling a a compelling villain. Um, Because, because you want to relate to the villain, even if it's like to hate them, like you want to relate to them. Right. If they're just like some evil, like, again, like rolling into like mental illness is bad, air quotes. Like if they're just some evil, crazy monolith. Yeah, psychopath or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like that's, you are missing all the, like you're ignoring, you're, you're excusing yourself from facing the, the very natural, very almost inevitable evil that can just naturally emerge from air quotes, normal humans, Uh, which which I will say, even, even those, you know, sociopaths still are fun fact. They're, they're still people. They're still, they're just as human as you. Um, so that's something that like, I think about a lot with, with the stories we've told and, and with other stories I have told, I love having villainous characters who are like just dark reflections of people. Like they're, they're still, just as human as you, they just have got have taken a different path. Um, and I think that that's so incredibly important. Um, to, to the point where like, I, I just, I don't think I have in the podcast and I, I certainly haven't in any like other home games or stuff I've run. I just don't do villains who are just bad. Like, yeah. Like you might spend little enough time with them at first that you're like, Oh, this person's just bad. Like obviously Grimm is running a death cult. Like, Yes. Grim is bad to the main characters, but like uh, if we did a follow-up, trust me, Grim has motivations uh, as does, as does all of those acolytes because, and that's like one of the the things like, Hey, cults exist in our world and those leaders have, have, have motivations. Right. So like they, they ain't just bad. They are doing things because of how it benefits and advances them and, and, and other reasons. Yeah, I sort of deviated on that. Uh, uh, no, if- I, I like that response. Um, I, I wanted to say a couple of things there, I think. Yeah. To the all idea that people are human, I think that they're, I struggle with this sometimes too, when you see real evil in the world, there is an attempt to dehumanize it. And I, or, and I think people, it's interesting with Nazis, people take the, the dehumanizing versus humanizing approach into two extremes in a way. They go either to well, they're just fundamentally not human. Therefore mm-hmm. it's okay to, to kill them uh, or they go the like, no, they're still human. And, you know, therefore you shouldn't hurt them. And I think there's a bit where you kind of have to do the harder thing of like, this is a person who, you know, has is complicated in to an extent and probably has people they care about people that care about them and they still need to die. 
because they're hurting people right now. And I think you kind of, you gotta, if you're going to kill someone, I think you've got to be okay with sitting with that. Like I, I realize I've, I've never had to be in that position and I, yeah. I don't want to over like, you know, maybe you have to dumb it down a bit just to get yourself through that. But it, on a broader moral sense, I think if you're, if your only way to kill someone or to justify their death is to dehumanize them, that is a dangerous place to go. Yeah. And um, the other thing I kind of wanted to say, you know, the idea of, I like that idea you said about how everyone has a path because going back to the character of, of O'Connell, I, it's certainly hinted out that he's someone who's lived about as long, maybe longer than Dane. And the way that I saw like someone of that is not someone who's like fundamentally, you know, just mentally wrong in the head or has a screw loose, but more as someone who has lived a very long time and has, over the course of that, just consistently chosen cruelty enough to where that's just all that's left of them. And it's kind of like been, meant to be a bit of a dark sort of mirror for Dane of like what he could be if he continues to choose. He, you know, cause you live long enough, you have enough chances to choose one way or the other. And if you just consistently choose wrong, 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 eventually you just erode all of anything that might be good about you. The choices you make are what you become. Yeah. I'll, I will revisit the, the, the things that have inspired me. Um, yes. question uh, we'll see if I actually touch on anything that like content wise has inspired me but like uh, there was a project on YouTube uh, that was uh, Markiplier and Crank Gameplays um, that was called Unus Honest. Yes. Uh, one year uh, they started it in 2019 finished it in 2020 and then deleted everything uh, because the, the, whole, the whole project was a like make a video every day and then at the end of that year delete it the whole channel um, and I, I came into it fairly early in the process and ended up watching uh, everything with with Emma and I and another one of our uh, friends. We we watched all of it, and that project was so creatively inspirational to me. Not because any of the content directly was like I nothing we make is anything like what they made for that that project, but just like the the such a strong impetus to like create 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 and like you you can do it up to your ability like you know obviously like there are other things that get in the way of that but sure. like the impulse to do something and make something and let it be okay like like when you're putting out a video every day not <laughs> there's a there's a quote from a SNL skit called uh, the the skit is about David Pumpkins it has uh it's a, it's a meme at this point. Uh, it has uh, Tom Hanks as a guest on that one. Uh, but there's a, a quote in it because there's like an elevator going up to different floors in this like horror, uh, you know, hotel sort of experience. Uh, and they're like a hundred floors of frights. They ain't all going to be winners. Uh, and like, I think about that all the time with like, if you're, if you make enough content, you, a, you will attract people to it, but also like they don't all have to be slam dunks, like, you know, five stars every time. Like that's, that's not what you, you can strive for that, certainly, but if you do that, you're going to really limit yourself. Um, and so Unus Honest like, taught me to sort of like let go and just do, just do something. Yeah. Um, so that was inspirational to me in that way. Um, very recently inspirational to me is an animation on Netflix called Centaur World, um, okay. which is like, it's absurd and beautiful and imperfect, but wonderful. And it's one of those things that like if you'd said 10 years ago that something like this was going to be on a platform like Netflix, I would have just like laughed at you because like it's such it's so clearly a passion project um, by the people who created it. And it's just something that like for it to gain such an audience or, or such an opportunity like that, it's just 
totally wild to me. And I think it's been it's been really inspirational as well. Uh, again, a little bit in content. They, they have this character that is the Nowhere King that is just really <laughs> intimidating and alluded to in wonderful like horror ish ways. Uh, that's that's really great. But like ultimately, it's just seeing like for me, creativity inspires me and like seeing people follow their passions and make something like this and and tune it to the level of polish that it has because like. Uh, I, I like I study animation. I don't uh, like I do not have the artistic skills, at least yet, to do any of that particularly myself. Yeah. But like I, I've watched a lot of content around understanding it and understanding the process behind it. And so like I I've really enjoyed analyzing the animation in it because like where they cut corners is very, very smart. Where they spend the time and spend the effort and spend the money is really, really smart and really, really gorgeous. And like it's just it's been a while since I've seen something that has like so captured my imagination and so captured my just drive to see people doing things they love. Uh, and, and Centaur World did that, and so that's been a really recent inspiration. Um, something that like I view as like a cornerstone for tone, uh, for like like what tone I try to achieve, is there's another uh, animated show uh, called Infinity Train. Uh, it was originally on on Disney and, mm-hmm. and later it was on HBO Max. Um, and infinity train has like, oh man, like each season has a different theme and they get like increasingly deep and philosophical. Uh, like the entire second season is basically what does it mean to be human? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and they have like these, these deeper, more cerebral themes while simultaneously, like it's very absurdist. It's very, they have like comedy that's not like there are bits that are like funny genuinely and then there are bits that are like fart jokes like in in the first season yeah. like it, it, and like having this duality uh, of this sort of almost stupid comedy and this darker deeper exploration of of these themes that's something that like uh, a line I certainly try to straddle in the the works that we make I'm, I'm editing through the watch right now, uh, which will, I don't know, might in some level even be released by the time this sees the light of day. Uh, I'll actually put this out hopefully soon if I get it done. Okay. So this will probably come out before the watch then, uh, before any of that. But like <laughs> we have really funny joke in like the middle of this rather serious exposition at the start of the first episode. Uh, I had completely forgotten about this, but like, one of the things I love about doing a TTRPG show, eventually, like I'm definitely thinking that uh, I'll I'll do an audio drama at some point because, like, there's also some stories that are really interesting to tell that are pre-written, right? Yes. Um, but uh, one something I just I love about doing it this way is like you can have the in-character, in-moment drama, the the suspense, the horror, even, and then like in the next instant. You can step away, be at the table, and make some stupid goof off of something. It's like watching a movie with your friends, and that's like part of the show, right? Um, yeah. And I like there are times where it doesn't fit as well, and some of that stuff gets cut and makes it into bloopers. But like, dang, sometimes that juxtaposition is just wonderful, uh, and I I love that about doing this medium. Yeah. No, I I definitely feel the same. I got a, a short and easy question later if you're. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say one brief moment that I yeah. feel like I loved of that, of the sort of out of table and in table stuff mixing was in your last Brindlewood Bay of the door opening sound effect <laughs> that 
Uh, who's who's the actor that plays Diana? Uh, that was Dempsey. That Dempsey made him just say, Ing! and then she just sees on that, be like, Diana, would you stop doing that, please? <laughs> uh, because so, it was so clearly meant by Dempsey as just like doing a sound effect, yeah. I assume. And, and oh, just, yeah, yeah. just to seize on that and make it part of that was was so funny. That That is both, both Dempsey's... Uh, Dempsey has this strategy to uh, improv that like I, I did some stuff with him like way back in high school and stuff so like I, I already had a feel for how he is as a as an actor um, but like he definitely just throws like he, he takes a whole bucket of spaghetti and he throws it at the wall to see what sticks and then just runs with whatever sticks and, and so there's so much that like <laughs> there's so much in Brindlewood Bay that there's in the like I don't want to like talk up the blooper reel too much, but like there's a lot of stuff that just gets cut because like, it's not actually that funny. Um, but then there's other stuff that like, for some reason persists through the whole thing, like the stupid peach tree bit from the setup. That was definitely so him, him throwing spaghetti and like it, it didn't even stick. And we still like kept that spaghetti. Like I, <laughs> it was it, so good. Oh man. It was so good. It's, it's, it's our worst bit that made it into the show and like stuck around. Uh, that's uh, so funny. But yeah, like him, him doing the sound effect was just Dempsey doing what he does. And then yeah. like Pat, Pat's genius is Patrick. He has such a good sense of when to, when to hop on something like when to like, like yes. And it, um, and that is like a great example of him being like, <laughs> just like, Nope, this is part of the scene now. And then like, of course it's so hilarious. Like how could we not keep it? And <laughs> then it just has that, that whole like increased in dimension because Dempsey has done this in character and now like the the villain the this significant character who's in in the room has just sat there and listened to all of this and that's that's a TTRPG like in a nutshell yeah, like that's absolutely that's the stupid ridiculous stuff that you can create improvisationally like that it's 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 why I keep playing it's why I come back to the medium same same. So what was your short question you had? Yeah, uh, on that same vein of like TTRPG interests, um, what is one TTRPG you haven't played that you really want to? Ooh. I mean, obviously I have a very long list of this, but I'm, I'm going to pick one to, to share myself, but I'm okay. interested to hear yeah, what you have. Yeah, that's a shorter list because I, I, there are definitely some obvious ones. Like I haven't played a lot of PTPR stuff that I want to get to. I've mostly done Monster of the Week, not exclusively, but... Um, Apocalypse World definitely looks fun. Uh, I'm actually very, it's not going to be the one that I pick ultimately. I haven't done as much D&D actually. I mm-hmm. started with Power so it's, there are some appeals to D&D that I am not as burnt out on as some people are. But there is one that my girlfriend actually got that I haven't gotten to play yet, which is an entire game around a community that gets isolated from society at large and you basically play as them i don't know if it's over a year or over like you know maybe a kind of an indeterminate set of time whatever you want it to be but it's them coming up with their own language and so there's a whole system set up for coming up with words yeah and because i mentioned earlier like i love worlds that are based on the material conditions that they Mm -hmm. inhabit and that's very much about that and then eventually what happens is the society gets reintegrated. And so it's about how that language is kind of lost or diluted with time. So it's a very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I feel like an, I'll give also give a brief nod to A Quiet Year because I haven't gotten to play that one yet. And that looks like I would love to do. We considered doing that for the setup for Atlantis. I did briefly, but then I just decided to keep it simpler um, for a lot of reasons. So And Tazzy for C was coming out and everyone would have said we were just copying them. So should we do that? 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I love a quiet year, uh, or the quiet year, rather. Uh, the quiet year is, it's honestly, uh, if I have a, a, a game I go to to share with new people who are new to TTRPGs, it is my favorite. Um, okay. Because it's so easy to understand, and it's just like react to this card you've drawn. Like, do something. Like, answer this question. Um, and I feel like everybody can get that. Um, even people who aren't like as familiar with like really inserting themselves into a role can take on the the idea of imagining a community, right? Um, and also, it's just it's just really fun to play. I've played the Quiet Year I think three times now, and like I just want to do more of it sometime. That would be that would be great. It's a really For really sure. fun game. Yeah. I, I I don't need an excuse to play something that Avery Alder wrote because everything they've made is. Wonderful. Uh, on that Good. same vein, if I were to like list one, uh, it's an, another another one by them. Uh, Monster Hearts Two. I want to play so bad. I want to play Monster Hearts real bad. I've played Monster Hearts briefly with the group, and it was a lot of fun. I would love to pick that up. Yeah. I, right after that, for me right now is I really want to play Wander Home, and I really want to play uh, Bluebeard's Bride. Um, mm. And Bluebeard's Bride, I really want to run for uh, a few friends of mine who uh, will give me good reactions because it's a it's a horror game, um, more so than anything we've run on the show, much more so. Uh, and I I would love to just I'd love to run that and see what I'm capable of in that department. I haven't gotten to run something real real dark and and cerebral spooky. Um, I've I've like touched on it in some of the games, but. Um, yeah, I really want to play Bluebeard's Bride. It would be really a blast. Um, oh, right. also Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I is it Thirsty Sword Lesbians or is it just Sword Lesbians? It's Thirsty Sword Lesbians. That's the game. TSL. There's a lot of really great games out there. There's so much good stuff out there, which always makes me so sad. I, I even you know mentioned being interested in indie, but it does make me so sad when that's just seen as the default of the only thing because it's really mm-hmm. not even the most intro player friendly. even 5e like yeah. which is stripped down is still not and and like i am not there's certainly a group of people who play ttrpgs who at this point like reject D completely and like and talk talk mad shit on it all the time yeah uh, i still run D on a weekly oh, basis like i <laughs> i still like that game uh and and even if i am a little burnt out i'm mostly just like i was running at 1.3 games on a weekly basis for like no. over a year and that too was a much. lot that yeah, was too no. much D for me uh and so stopped doing that um but yeah, it's D and D is a great game. A fifth edition is is great. Uh, I my first exposure to TTRPG, if you don't include some like board games that sort of come close to that spectrum, um, is probably three point five D and D three three point five. Okay. Um, and then I just totally skipped over fourth edition and then came into fifth edition. Um, and I I love fifth edition. I think it's it's the best they've made so far. Um, I think it. It streamlines a lot of the stuff that I don't like. It's also worth mentioning that, like, I don't really play D anD. utilize their framework, and I just I completely ignore anything I don't like about it. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I do not play it rules as written, and I I never have, and I never will because <laughs> it's I I love what it does and and the themes that like it does bring in, and like by being a simulation style game, I think it does some things really well. Um, but there's also a reason why we don't run it on the podcast. I think you can absolutely make compelling D&D content as a podcast. Absolutely. Yes. You, you can do it. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go through the hassle. Yeah, same. <laughs> it, same. I just don't think it's built for it. I think if I you're agree. doing it 
where specifically it's not built to do a like very story forward. Um, it's built to be a TTRPG that has a story. Um, you can it's built to be a video game on paper a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And so, like, of course, like video games can tell interesting stories. Like you can tell great stories with D and D. Like I was inspired by D and D that we'd run to do this podcast, right? I think for the nitty gritty, you have to love D and D first in order to enjoy D and D podcasts. I feel yeah. like you have to you have to want to you have to want the the rolling of the D twenty and the skills checks for stupid things and like all of that stuff. You have to want all that. Um, and I don't know. That just wasn't it wasn't central to the stories I wanted to tell. So that's why we opted to not. And we end. I. I I won't hold to this maybe completely. Like maybe we'll do a stream at some point or something like that. But like I will, I will never run a D and D centered TTRPG podcast. Uh, I just won't do it uh, yeah. because I don't want. That's just not the kind of stuff that I want to tell. Yeah, I agree. It's fun to play though. You should like if you if you haven't played it before, you know, go play it. You know, anyone out yeah. there listening, it's a fun game. Uh, but also, like, bear in mind, it is not the end-all be-all of TTRPGs. There are yes. so many incredible games out there. And I do agree with the people who like view its hegemony as being probably way overblown. In fact, definitely way overblown. Uh, and that other games really should be given a chance in the, in the public consciousness. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up on. Um, yeah. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I love, honestly, even if we weren't doing this for me to release it or for us to release it, it's it's just nice to talk. I feel like we yeah. have a lot of similarities in terms of what we care about, so it's always great. Um, anything you want to leave folks on? Um, I mean, go watch Centaur World on Netflix if you have Netflix. It's a great show. Uh, it I almost didn't watch it because the the style of it is v- like very absurdist in a way that I thought I wasn't going to connect with, and then I definitely did. And I just rewatched like half of it last night, so it's a great time. I will go give that a shot and listen to Trials of the Apocalypse. Oh yeah, it's a good show. Podcast. And listen to Meddling with Monsters. It's it's. Yeah. I mean, you're probably listening to this on that channel, so you probably already do. But, but if you don't, but if you don't, what are then, you doing? Then, How did you get here? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, thank you all for listening. And thank you, David, for spending some time yeah. with me. This is really enjoyable. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.